By the way, we're in our second week of our series, Uprising. We're talking about and learning how we can spark a revolution so that we can impact lives and in, ter- in turn change the world. And we're learning so far that according to the Bible, which by the way is the ultimate authority, the ultimate absolute when it comes to life, we're learning that discipleship is the only method for real life change. It's the only method that the Bible endorses. In other words, if the world is going to change, it's not going to happen by just addressing things like social issue, uh, racial reconciliation. It's not going to happen by just eradicating hunger and poverty. It's not going to happen by making sure that everybody has access to a top-notch education. All things, all great things that we should probably be involved in But we're learning that if the world is really going to change, it's only going to happen when the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, gets serious about taking up the torch of making disciples. By the way, let me just say one of the popular slogans for this year's presidential campaign is make America great again, which would be awesome. Wouldn't you love to be great again? But that's not what I'm talking about in this series. I'm not talking about America being great again or the world being great again. In fact, I think we need to get past the idea that somehow our nation and our world is going to get better. I mean, all you got to do is go back to Romans chapter 1. We looked at that passage in our series, Meet the Gospel, right before the summer break. And we looked at the depravity of mankind. And just so you know, our world rotates on the axis of that depravity. And that depravity has created a downward vortex of sin. And so the world's never going to do this. The world's never going to get better and better and better. It's impossible. The world's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. And because of that, as I've shared with you before, there's a cycle that all great civilizations go through. Uh, This isn't original with me. It was a Scottish historian who lived in the 1700s who came up with this. His name was Alex Tyler. But it is so true. Let me just share it with you again. It begins in bondage. All great civilizations, at some time they were in bondage, which leads to spiritual faith or that sense of trust in God. And then second, that sense of trust in God leads to great courage. Great courage leads to liberty, that that courageous attitude. Liberty leads to abundance. I mean, I'm telling you, lands that are free are lands that have abundance. But then something always happens at this point. And what happens is this. Selfishness and self-centeredness become a huge part of the culture. And because of that, abundance leads to leisure. Leisure leads to selfishness. Selfishness leads to complacency. Complacency leads to apathy. Apathy leads to dependency, usually dependence on the government. Uh Uh-oh. Dependency leads to weakness. And weakness leads back to bondage. It leads back to pain, suffering, injustice. But I want you to understand and notice that it all starts and stops at bondage because the world is rotating on the axis of depravity. Now, you can look at that cycle and you can decide where we are as a nation on that cycle. I would just encourage you, if you're going to go out to lunch today, eat dessert first. That would be my recommendation, right? By the way, there's an interesting part of James chapter 5 where James talks about the issues of pain and suffering and injustice in this world. And when you get to chapter five, verse seven, he actually tells us as Christians how we deal with it, the crazy stuff that's going on in our world. This is what he says in James chapter five, verse seven. Be patient then brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. And and I read that and I think, James, are you kidding me? See, I'm willing to be patient for an hour, maybe a week if I'm feeling really, really spiritual. But to tell me to just hang in there, to suck it up, to just be patient until Jesus one day comes back and puts everything back the way it's supposed to be, to me, that's just not a realistic answer. See, I want a solution for pain and suffering and injustice in the world today. I want it right now, at least by tomorrow. 
But it's interesting, in James chapter 5, James takes us back to a theme that runs all the way through the New Testament. Jesus talked about it. Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it. They all taught this. The ultimate solution to pain and suffering and injustice in this life will not be found in this life. The ultimate uh, solution to pain and suffering and injustice in this world is not going to be found in this world. And as Americans, see, that is very, very frustrating to us because, see, we want heaven now. In fact, if we're honest, we spend a good deal of our time, our money, our energy trying to experience heaven now. We want a perfect life now, a problem-free life now. We want a wrinkle-free life now. The problem is, no matter how hard we try, we eventually run out of time and youth and money and energy. And eventually, we all come to the same conclusion. This life ain't heaven. Do you know why? It wasn't designed to be heaven. And as much as God hates what is happening in the world, but again, he gave mankind free choice. And as much as we hate what's happening in the world, the truth is this, the ultimate solution to pain and suffering and injustice will not be found in this world. It is not going to be found in this life. And that's why James says you just got to be patient until Jesus returns because therein lies the solution that we all long for. So when I'm talking about impacting lives so that the world can be changed, listen, I'm not talking about the world getting better and better and better. I'm talking about relying on the principle and the truth that Jesus is gonna continue to get better and better and better, even though the world is gonna continue to get worse and worse and worse. That's why I'm telling you, the only hope for this world is making disciples. You know, a few years ago, we invested millions of dollars in the Central African Republic drilling wells. But see, we didn't want to just drill wells so that the Africans there in the Central African Republic could go to hell well hydrated. That's not why we did that, right? That's why we started churches. That's why we made sure they had access to being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we discipled them so they could understand, as James says, hey, life on this earth, it's like a vapor. It's not going to last forever. It's really nothing more than a tune-up and a preparation for eternity. Understand life will not, see we cannot fix the Central African Republic, but we can give them the hope of an eternal destiny in heaven with Jesus Christ. Do you know why, that, that's why we started a church in Haiti, by the way. Do you know more money has been invested in Haiti than any country on the planet? But I guarantee you, if you go to Haiti, it is a big, huge mess. It has not changed one bit. We can't fix Haiti, but you know what we can do? We can give Haitians an eternal perspective that says one day, one day, there's going to be justice. One day, the pain and suffering is going to be dealt with. One day. Hang in there. Be patient. That's what James says. One day is going to happen. That's why it's so important that we take up this torch of making disciples. And I gave you a definition last week for discipleship. Discipleship is an informal, behind-the-scenes, character-training experience. And it's interesting, if you read the Gospels, you discover that for the most part, Jesus ignored the masses. Every once in a while, he would you know, pass out the fish and chips and do something like that. But for the most part, Jesus focused on the individual. In fact, he spent the majority of his time with 12 men, 12 men that he handpicked one by one. And for the most part, they were untrained and uneducated men. But understand, if you read the Gospels, you will learn that Jesus poured into their lives in such a way that they picked up the torch of the Gospel and they turned the world right side up by the end of their lives. 
So again, Jesus has already given us the strategy on how we can go about reaching the triangle and changing the world. That's our vision here at Hope, by the way, if you're new. Reach the triangle, change the world. He's given us the strategy. It's by making disciples. Now, if this idea of disciples had faded away after Jesus had left planet Earth, we wouldn't have much of an argument. But the Apostle Paul is a perfect example of someone who modeled, emulated the strategy that Jesus laid out. And let's be honest, you know, the Apostle Paul did okay for himself, okay? That's what we want to look at this weekend. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, okay? So it's the seventh book in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16. I want to give you this weekend six basic principles of a discipleship relationship. Last weekend, we looked about the theory or the model, why discipleship. I want to give you a picture this week of what a discipleship relationship looks like. And if you're interested in following Jesus's model for reaching the triangle and changing the world, Paul gives us a picture here of what it looks like. By the way, if you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses on the screen, but you can download the Get Hope app. You can go to messages. It will have every verse we're going to use this weekend, every principle we're going to give you. You can take notes, email it to yourself, and you'll have a permanent record. You may want to do that for the future. Now, you can see the theme of this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. Let me just read a few verses. Paul's writing this letter to the church at Corinth. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. Verse 12, now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urge him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. So in this letter, Paul is talking about his desire to visit Corinth, to hang out with the Corinthian people. But understand, if you read the letter, his desire is that they be discipled. He knew they needed help spiritually. He knew they needed encouragement. He knew they needed teaching. He knew that there were some things that they were involved in as Christians that they shouldn't be involved in. And Paul knew that the best environment for those things to change was going to take place through a discipleship relationship. And so Paul lays out six principles to help us understand what that looks like. And these principles that we're going to look at over the next few minutes, I want you to understand that they are just as important to us reaching the triangle and changing the world today as they were 2,000 years ago when Paul originally wrote this letter. Let me give you the first principle and then we will unpack it. A discipleship relationship starts with a person who knows where he or she is going. In other words, you cannot disciple someone if you're floundering around with no clear direction for your spiritual journey. But if you understand where you're going, if you know your direction in life, you are ready to disciple someone. But understand it all starts with a person who knows where they're going spiritually. In fact, notice what Paul says in verse 5. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you for I will go through Macedonia. And then we can see his plan in verse eight. I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. So Paul makes it very, very clear. I got some stuff to do. I got some people to see in Ephesus. But when I finish up what I need to do in Ephesus, I'm gonna cross the Aegean Sea and then I will be with you in Corinth. But understand, not only did Paul know where he was going geographically, he knew where he was going spiritually. It's a great book. It's an old book. I'm sure it's out of print, so don't ask to borrow mine. But it's on leadership. It's called The Art of Leadership. It's written by a guy named Ortway Teague. And in it, he gives 10 qualities of a good leader. In chapter two, the second quality he mentions is a sense of purpose and direction. In other words, 
People tend to follow an individual, right? If they know where they're going. This is what he writes. He says, a quality which is prominent in every leader is a strongly developed sense of dominant purpose and direction in life. He is one who knows with greater than average strength of conviction what he wants to get done and where he wants to go. And then he makes this statement. The world stands aside to let pass the man who knows where he is going. By the way, you see that in the life of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus knew where he was going. And that's why Jesus was able to recruit men to follow him, even though they had zero qualifications to do what Jesus needed them to do. For example, he recruited a tax collector named Matthew. I've told you before, tax collectors, they were the slime balls of the first century. But Jesus meets Matthew, and he has lunch with Matthew, and he hangs out with Matthew, and Matthew ends up following Jesus. On another occasion, he meets a young fisherman. His name is Andrew. It's the same Andrew who found the boy with the loaves and fish and brought him to Jesus, right? Andrew walked away from his career as a fisherman, and he followed Jesus. Andrew went and found his big brother, Peter. You've heard of him. He said, you got to meet this Jesus dude. And Peter meets Jesus. And even though he ran the family business, he walked away from the family business, and he followed Jesus. Jesus. My point is this. If you study the life of Jesus, you learn that he had this unique ability to want people, to make people want to follow him. And when Jesus, when they decided to follow Jesus, he made it very, very clear what his agenda was, what his plan was for their life. He said this, understand, understand if you follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's what this is all about. And he taught them the strategy and the plan that would allow them to do that. He discipled them. He, he mentored them. So I want you to understand something. You don't have to be perfect to disciple someone. You don't have to have it all together to disciple someone. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to be able to study and read the Greek and the Hebrew. You don't have to be a spiritual giant, but you do have to be called by Jesus and you do need to know the journey that he is taking you on. You know, there's an old saying that he who thinks he's leading but looks over his shoulder and no one is following is only taking a walk, right? (laughs) Right? So the only way you can lead someone is to actually know where you're going and then they will follow you. Here's principle number two. A discipleship relationship requires you to get personally involved with another individual for an extended period of time. In other words, this is a life-on-life relationship. Look what Paul says in verse six. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. Then he says this. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. In other words, if I dropped in now, I could probably only stay for a couple of days. He said, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. By the way, how long did Jesus spend with his men to disciple them? Well, we know it was, about, it was about three years. How long do you commit to an individual to disciple them? Well, there is no set time. For some people, it may take six months. There's someone here this weekend, and I had the opportunity to lead him into a relationship with Jesus Christ and then to disciple him. And because there were certain disciplines he had in his life before he was a Christian, he just brought those disciplines with him. So he applied the same disciplines to growing as a Christian, and he was kind of fast-tracked. That's not always the case. For some people, it may take years. But Paul says this, when I show up in Corinth, it isn't just going to be a flyby. He says, I'm, I'm committing to this relationship for the long haul, which means this. Let me give you a principle. You cannot disciple someone 
that you do not want to spend time with. You cannot disciple someone that you don't naturally like, that you don't click with, that you're not comfortable and excited about being in a relationship with. In fact, it's kind of interesting, the term with, okay, you wouldn't think it would be a big deal, but this term with that Paul uses in verse six and seven is actually a very seldom used translation of the word with. This is what he says in verse six, perhaps I will stay with you for a while. Verse seven, I hope to spend some time with you. This form of the word with in the Greek means to be intimately involved with. It means to be face to face with. So for discipleship to take place, this life on life, there has to be face to face involvement. You cannot be discipled by showing up on the weekends and listening to my messages. You're not gonna be discipled through reading books. You're not gonna be discipled by listening to incredible podcasts when you take your walk. The only way you can be discipled is in a face-to-face relationship, life on life. I mean, think about the individuals who've invested in you back over your life. Maybe it was your business. Maybe you were starting a business and you didn't know what you were doing, but someone came alongside who had been where you are and they mentored you, they poured into you. Or maybe, maybe it was your education. Or maybe you got married and it was rocky and there was a couple who was seasoned and they had been experienced, had been down the road of marriage and they came alongside and they poured into you and your marriage survived and now you're growing, it's flourishing. Or maybe someone invested in you so you could be a better parent or maybe it was spiritual. And I think for me, it was Dr. Neil Anderson. He's the one who wrote a Bondage Breaker. He's done a lot of research, a lot of writing on spiritual warfare. But when I went to Talbot Seminary, understand one day I'm like a 24-year-old PE teacher. And then one day, I'm a senior pastor. And I, like, I did, I'd go to Neil's office. He was over pastoral ministries. And I'd say, Neil, how do you, how do, you do a funeral? I got a funeral. Uh, how, how do you do a wedding? I've, heard, I've been to him, but I didn't pay attention. So how, how, how do you do that? How do you do a baby dedication, right? And he began to just pour into me. This is what's interesting. Early on, he picked up right away that I was a young man who grew up in a very religious, legalistic background. And I knew a lot about rules and I knew a lot about regulations, but I had no concept of what grace was. And without me even realizing it, I would spend more time in his office than I would in his classes with my feet up on his desk. And I didn't even know he was discipling me, but he was taking me on a journey to discover grace. In fact, people ask me, what does your tattoo on your wrist mean? It, It means preach grace. That's what it says, preach grace. Either that or stupid right man. But I think I had it checked. I'm pretty sure it says preach grace. I, I checked it out. I know a guy that has a, a, a Chinese restaurant and he checked it out for me. So uh, it, says, it, says, it says preach grace. It says preach grace. And you know why it reminds me that when I'm with people, they don't need me to judge them. They need me to, they need me to, to show them grace. God's grace, right? But that's what Neil did in my life. My point is this. The people who make a difference in our lives are people that we're personally involved with. They're personally involved in us and the fabric, the makeup of our lives. So there's gotta be personal involvement. Principle number three, a discipleship relationship, this is so important. It's a God thing and not a you thing. In other words, it's not about you going around recruiting people so that you can bless them you know, with your vast wisdom and knowledge. It's not about your agenda. It's not about some ego trip that you're on. Paul says this in verse seven, I hope to spend some time with you. Look at this, if the Lord Permits. In other words, I want to be there. I want to be involved in your lives, but God has to allow it. Ultimately, God has to permit this. It has to be a God thing. It's kind of like being married. You know, when you get married, two become one, right? And I will tell you one of the real keys to a long-lasting, successful marriage 
is mutual submission. You submit to one another, right? You put each other's needs above your needs. But mutual submission means you don't do anything of significance without both of you being in agreement. Laura and I, we didn't come here to start this church until we were mutually in agreement. It took us about nine months for us to get there. But we always do that. And I know what some of you are thinking. Like, I don't, I don't spend any money, and we've been married 38 years, I don't spend any money with, with check, without checking the law. Not even 50 bucks. She does the same thing because we're in this together. She may say, could you wait till next week? Could you wait till next month? But we always, it's, it's mutual submission. I know what some of you men are thinking. Wow, you're whipped. Yeah, <laughs> but you're divorced. See, it's a big difference. It's, it, 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 I'm just being honest with you. See, see, just think about it. Uh, so anyway, you wait for permission. And, and uh, I'll give you an example. I always wanted to get tattoos. I wanted a Harley. That wasn't going to happen. Laura just put her foot down. I knew that wasn't even on the table. But I wanted to get tattoos. Laura would never let me get tattoos because we had two boys. She says, no, because if you get tattoos, they're going to get tattoos. Well, guess what? My boys went ahead and got tattoos without me. In fact, one year they gave me, they went in together and gave me a $100 gift certificate to Warlock Tattoos to get a tattoo. And I'm like, this is so cool. And I looked at Laura and I could see the tears and I gave it back to the boys. I said, you guys just use it. I think they set me up actually, right? Because they knew mom wasn't going to go for it. But for our 25th anniversary, we're walking down the beach at Waikiki. And I'm confident because there were a lot of, a lot of men there that were tan, dark, handsome, and they had tattoos. Laura said, you know what? If you want to get a tattoo, go ahead and get one. I literally, she's sitting here. She will attest. I walked straight from the beach barefooted to the tattoo parlor and got my tattoo. I gave her no chance whatsoever to back out, right? But I needed permission, right? It's the same way in this discipleship. You may walk out of here this weekend. You may want to disciple, man, I'm going to disciple some people. I'm going to disciple 10, 15. I'm going to disciple 20 people for God. God may not permit that. And, and, and it's because God has a very, very intentional plan when it comes to discipleship. And his plan has nothing to do with programs, okay? His plan is all about relationships. And I believe that God designed it around relationships for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're in a relationship with someone, it keeps it from being all about you, right? It takes more than just you, right, to be in a relationship unless, you know, you're a weirdo or something. And then second, it will keep it from just being another program, you ever been in a church program? You show up, you talk, you discuss, you pray, you leave. You next week, you show up, you talk, you discuss, you pray, you leave. You do it over and over again. It's interesting. If you read the Gospels, not one time will you find Jesus saying, okay, guys, we're going to meet up on the hill every Thursday, 5 to 7 a.m. Make sure you bring the scroll of Isaiah, a notepad, and a number two pencil. You don't, you don't, you don't find that anywhere. It, it, was, it was a relationship. It wasn't a program. I'm telling you, I tweeted this at 3.30 this morning. As Christians... We can program the Holy Spirit right out of our faith. And big churches are the worst. I mean, we want, we want to see people grow. Well, you know what? We need clarity. We need common language. We need 10 steps, all starting with the same letter so it's not confusing. You know, we got to start here, you know. And I'm, I'm like old school because I, I don't think that way. I'm like, wow, I don't know. Why don't we just see what the Holy Spirit does, you know? Well, no, no, no. It's a great reaction. Typically what I get from my staff, ain't nobody got time for that. We ain't got, we can't sit around here and wait. We can't sit around here and drag our butt waiting on the Holy Spirit, right? Right? I don't know about you. I'm sick of programs. I don't want another program. You know what I want? I want to be part of a movement. And you know why? Because I can look back now over 30, 36 years of ministry and I can pick, see, I'm a, I, I'm a halfway decent capable leader. And I can manipulate things into happening. 
And I can look back and I can see where I've done that, but there's a few times where God showed up and God did it. And you know God was up to something. I don't want to be a part of a program. I want to be a part of something that God is doing. I'm telling you, one of the highlights of my job is getting to watch how God, through his spirit, intentionally connects lives together within the framework of this church. On the other hand, one of, one of the heartaches of my job is to see those of you who would so long to be in this kind of relationship, but you're not in one. But even more heartbreaking is to see those of you who so desperately need a relationship like this, but you're just bullheaded and stubborn and you don't want it. You know what Neil Anderson told me when I was sitting in his office one day? He said, Mike, I think we could do with, away with 80% of counseling in churches if we would just focus on discipleship. I mean, some of you sitting here today, you're older. You've grown old as a Christian, but you've never grown up as a Christian. Man, the stuff I hear that comes out of small groups, I'm like, man, you should be past that by now, but you're not past it. You're still the milk. Simple basics of God's truth. You still don't understand. Some of you, it's the newbies with all of your baggage. My prayer is this. My prayer is that God will raise up people in our church who know where they're going. They desire to be in relationship. They're sensitive to the Holy Spirit so that lives can be developed and strengthened as God permits this to take place. Paul goes on and says in verse 9, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay on at Ephesus and Pentecost. Why am I going to stay there? Because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Here's the fourth one. And we talked about this last week. Discipleship, a discipleship relationship flourishes in a context of transparency and authenticity. I mean, it's interesting if you read those verses, you'll notice that Paul was willing to share what was going on in his life. Some of it was good, some of it was bad. He says in verse nine, God is using me to accomplish some incredible stuff here at Ephesus. But then he's also honest enough to say, you know, there's, there, there's some tough stuff going on. I mean, it's, it's not all roses and puppy noses. I mean, it's, it's, there's some good stuff, but there's some tough stuff, tough stuff. This is what Paul said when he wrote a second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter one, verse eight. He said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Do you know what that means? It means that the, the, the great apostle Paul got overwhelmed. In fact, do you know what it means? It means he got depressed. There were times he was depressed, which brings up a question. When you despair of life, when you are overwhelmed with life, when you go to that dark place and depression sets in, do you have somebody that you can confide in? Let's be honest. For most of us, the answer is no. And I think that's especially true of men. And part of the reason is we just live in this guarded mass society And it's much easier just to hide behind a phone or a computer screen and keep our relationships very, very shallow, image control. After all, if people know us, you know, hey, they may think we're human, right? Let me give you a principle. You will never grow in your relationship with Jesus until you're able to let the truth about yourself be known. You will never grow as a Christian until you're in a place where you're willing and able to let the truth about yourself be known. You will never experience the life transformation that God desires for you until you're able to let the truth about yourself be known. Mark Twain said this, we're all like the moon. We all have a dark side. I have a friend here and 
the previous church before he came here, he met every Friday with the pastor of the church, every Friday for breakfast, clockwork, accountability, discipleship, relationship. And then later on, he discovered that the entire time that they had been meeting in an accountability, discipleship relationship, the pastor had been involved in an adulterous affair. Blew his mind, almost destroyed his faith. Which made me think, you know, it doesn't matter how accountable you are if you're not honest. Doesn't matter how accountable you are if you're not gonna be transparent, there's not gonna be any life change. Let me just tell you something. One of the most important things I can do as your pastor is to remind you I'm just as human as anybody else. I put my pants on just like you do, one leg at a time. And, and even then, sometimes I don't get that right. I mean, you ever put one leg in the leg it was supposed to go in and then the other leg in the same leg? Have you ever done that? I did that. See that, see that knot on my head? Somebody thought I had cancer last night. And I said, no, I put both my legs in the same pant leg and fell and hit a head on a shelf. See, I suck at that. I can't even do that right, right? My point is this. You, you just need to know I haven't arrived. I have my own struggles just like you do. I have financial struggles just like you do. I have family struggles like you do. I have personal doubts just like you do. I deal with health issues just like you do. There are days I don't want to come to work. There are days I have a bad attitude. There are days I want to punch my staff in the throat. I don't. We have an HR department. You can't do that anymore. There are days when I'm lonely. My feelings get hurt. I sometimes struggle with depression. I get overwhelmed. Laura and I were sitting at a stoplight one day and a big old beautiful shiny semi rolled up. I looked at it and I thought, that's what I need to do. She said, what? Just drive. She's thinking, what am I going to do? Just ride. It's going to be, I mean, it's, it's so simple, right? Right? I experience hurts and challenges that don't get solved with a quick prayer. See, I, I'm much more like you than you realize. We all struggle. See, but we're just afraid to let that be known, aren't we? But who are we kidding? I mean, if we were to string out all of our dirty laundry here today, I mean, there's, there wouldn't be enough room, to, you know, to string it all out. But we don't want anybody to know that, do we? Why is that? It's because somewhere in our past we learn that's just, that's just not the way responsible people behave. They don't just share that stuff. Well, guess what? I can't find that in the Bible. And I will just tell you, just like with you, the people I'm the closest to in life know my deepest hurts and my struggles. And that's why discipleship has to be based on unguarded transparency and authenticity. You can meet in a discipleship relationship to the cows come home. But if there's not transparency and authenticity, there will never be any life change. It's not just a program you go through and check off the box. You gotta be open. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. The Greek word means disrespect. Here's principle number five. A discipleship relationship is strengthened through mutual support and equal respect. See, in Paul's mind, there was no spiritual king of the hill, right? And I mention that because, to be honest, this is often the biggest hurdle in a discipleship relationship. Often there's someone discipling someone and they feel like, you know, the spiritual giant. And because of that, there's not this mutual respect. Timothy was young, inexperienced. Paul's old, all kinds of experience. But Paul writes this letter and he says, well, hey, when Timothy shows up in Corinth, 
I don't want your reaction to be, hey, where is Paul? Why do we have him? Where's Paul? By the way, let me just say this. I, want, I just want you to know that hope does not have a pastor. It has many pastors. And that means that when someone teaches other than me, so you're not getting second best, you're, you're, you're getting the best. Or when you have a counseling need and you think you need to meet with me because you've seen me and somehow you think you know me and you want to meet with me but say I don't have time or my schedule won't permit or be honest with you, they try to keep you away from me because I'm such a horrible counselor. So when you, you want to meet with me, Patty's like, let me help you. I will get you to someone who can actually help you. I'm not a great counselor. You can come to me and tell me your story for an hour and a half. This is what I'm going to say. I don't know what to tell you, but this is what the Bible says. I'd do that. Anything else? You know, and I'll let you go. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just not a good counselor, right? And so when you don't meet with me and you meet with the, you know, you have the privilege of meeting, say, with one of our care pastors or campus pastors or area pastors or staff pastors or student ministry pastors or worship pastors, you're getting a pastor of this church. I encourage you, respect him, listen to him. If he didn't know what he was doing, you know, he wouldn't be in the role. Paul says, I, I want to come to Corinth. I hope to get there eventually. But until I do, I'm going to send Timothy. Don't badmouth him. Don't talk smack about him. Don't disrespect him. He's God's representative. Treat him as such. Understand in the same way, when you're involved in a discipleship relationship, just remember, you're on the same team. No one is over the other person or under the other person. You are together. It is a team. It's a relationship. It's not a program. And then verse 12, I close. Now about your brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now. But he will go when he has the opportunity. Principle number six, a discipleship relationship allows room for disagreement and individualism. Paul says, hey, I told Paulus, I think he ought to go to Corinth. He said, uh-uh, I'm not going to go. Right. And see, I think that's healthy. After all, let's be honest, Paul isn't God. He isn't God. And so he left plenty of room for disagreement, plenty of room for individualism. And that's important because uh, in a discipleship relationship, because you're not, you're not looking to produce robots. You're not trying to clone yourself. You need to leave room for individualism. Now, let me just wrap it up quickly. Everybody listening to me right now, you're in one of three categories. You're either, uh, maybe you are discipling someone, you're a discipler, or you're being discipled, you're a disciplee, or you're in neither. And many of you are in the neither category because that, that's just where you've chosen to be. I don't want anybody looking at my life. I'm not opening up to anybody. See, and that, that's between you and God. That's your choice. However, some of you are in the neither category because you still don't believe that it is the biblical way to actually reach the triangle and change the world. And I'm especially concerned about you because you've never caught the vision. Not, not the hope vision, but the, G, the vision that Jesus laid out. So I want, I want you just, in closing, I want you to watch this little 30-second video, and maybe it'll explain it. you reached and discipled one person this year, by the end of 2016, there'd be two disciples of Jesus. Then, if the two of you each reached and discipled one person, at the end of 2017, there'd be four disciples of Jesus. And if that multiplication carried into the next year, at the end of 2018, there'd be eight disciples of Jesus. And by the year 2037, 20 years from now, there would be two million 609,152 disciples of Jesus in the triangle. In just 30 years, there would be almost 1.5 billion additional disciples of Jesus worldwide. 
That's if just one started today. What if 10? What if 1,000? What if 10,000? That means that in less than a generation, every man, woman, child on planet Earth would be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and have a chance to respond to become one of his disciples. Brilliant plan that Jesus came up with. You see, here's the thing about me. I'm just simple enough and I am just naive enough to believe that with the power of Holy Spirit, it can be accomplished. See, we have to take that first step. Now, as you came in, let me tell you a great way you could take the first step. We have small groups here at Hope and they're just environments where you can meet people and build relationships. And as you came in today, everybody got a card. And if you didn't get one when you came in, you can get it when you leave. But if you fill out that card, drop it in, somebody's gonna get in touch with you and we're gonna ask you to be in a small group for seven weeks. It's an all play, you just try it. We're gonna start a brand new series after Labor Day. I'm gonna talk about God wants to use us. It's called Hope Where We Are. Wherever we go, we're taking hope with us, the message of Jesus Christ. And there are certain, you think, well, I, Mike, you don't know my past, and I don't have the education. We're going to be looking at in this series, see, there are certain things that man looks at. First Samuel 6, 17, but God doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at outward appearance. God looks at the heart. What is God looking at inside of us? That if we have those characteristics, those attributes, he will use us greatly for his kingdom. We're going to ask you to be in an all play for those seven weeks. And this is what I'm praying, that by being in that small group, you may meet someone and say, wow, I think they're a little further than, I'm, than I am. I wonder if they would invest in me. Or you may see someone and, and they may be incredibly sharp, but you're like, wow, there's some gaps in their theology. And I wonder if we could have a cup of coffee and just see what happens. But for that to happen, you've got to take the step. So fill out that card, drop it in as you're leaving. Donnie will give you some instructions in just a second. And let's let the Holy Spirit go to work. And let's see what's going to happen. Father, thank you for the time we've had together this weekend. In your name we pray. Amen.